Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tell us a little bit about your journey in starting your career coaching business. Yeah, of course. So my career coaching practice actually started when I was just meeting young people and folks for coffee chats. And I was doing this. I mean, I was a mentor for young people since high school, and that continued throughout post-secondary and then into my 20s and early 30s. And I was basically meeting with young people, mostly in the nonprofit international development space, a lot of young women and just having coffee chats about their career. And I think coaching and career coaching is something we don't always hear about as a career path. Mm. And coaching is really just a professional mentor Mm -hmm. and a mentor that does this for a living. And so it was quite natural because I had been mentoring young people for, you know, 10, 15 years and then finally figured out, oh, okay, coaching is an option and coaching is what I'm meant to do. Love it. Love it. I know that you have been really open and vulnerable with your journey in the corporate world. And there were some ups and downs there. And I'd love for listeners to get a sense of who were you before coaching? And what did what did your work life look like? Yeah, this is a great question. So I was working for the past 12 years, I spent about half my career in the nonprofit international development world. I worked in East Africa and the Caribbean on women's entrepreneurship and youth livelihoods programs. I then pivoted and transitioned into the tech startup corporate world and for-profit world. And I worked in sales, mostly at startups, social enterprises, and certified B corporations. And yeah, I've been very vulnerable about how about two years ago, I was actually fired from my job. I was the top sales rep at a tech tech startup that I loved with all my heart. And I was fired very abruptly after an evening of drinking alcohol with colleagues. And there were no HR professionals involved in my termination. And uh, I did go to a lawyer and learn about human rights violations and, uh, you know, how folks with disabilities, including substance abuse, Mm. which is something I had battled with my whole life with alcohol. Mm. And so the long story short was um, I had been working in a in the tech scene that was, you know, very heavily uh, encouraging alcohol in the workplace. And that was something that I had battled with for many years. And so I was fired from my job. It was incredibly challenging for my mental health, as we all know, going through a a job termination or being fired. And it was then that I was like, okay, this is, this is my big sign to do my coaching (laughs) business full time and to take it from a side hustle into a full time thing. But it it was very sudden. It was very abrupt. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it was a very low moment in my life where I had to spend a lot of time like rebuilding my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's easy to scale a business when you're going through, 
you know, your own, you're processing your own termination. And I know that you've been very brave about talking about this. So um, I, I really do appreciate you being transparent about that. I, I imagine there's a lot of people that come to you who might be going through similar situations and facing that battle, whether they've been laid off or fired, or when people kind of reach their tipping point and decide to voluntarily quit. A lot of the times when we are coaching job seekers, they're coming to us at a time where they they might be feeling clueless and they may be feeling a sort of loss of sense of self and identity and purpose, right? So I'm curious, what is your advice to those people that might be at that low point and trying to rebuild themselves and rebuild their career? Yeah, the job search is already challenging enough. Like Mm -hmm. we all know that regardless of, of how amazing you are at networking or selling yourself, the job search is always a challenging experience for anyone. And so I think going through the job search, when you're at a low point in your life, you've been let go, you've been laid off, you've been fired, or you had a really traumatic experience, which Mm -hmm. is incredibly common. You're already, you're already your low self-confidence. You're not in the happiest or best place in your Mm -hmm. life. So I think like the most important thing is to really focus on your mental health and your well-being. So that includes, you know, surrounding yourself with supportive friends and family. That includes going to therapy. That includes health and fitness, going on walks, Mm -hmm. taking care of yourself, sleep, eating healthy. And for me, it did include having a conversation with a lawyer just so that I could be Mm -hmm. empowered about employee rights, which was an incredibly empowering experience. And I'm grateful that I did that. And it also takes time. I think it's really important for job seekers to actually take some time off before jumping right into the job search again. And I know for financial reasons, not everyone has the privilege of doing that. But Mm -hmm. if if you do have the chance to even take a couple days or a week or a couple weeks or a couple months off, it's, it's really important to take that break to heal to speak to professionals, therapists, energy healers, lawyers, career coaches. And then when you're, when you've taken care of yourself and you've talked with professionals about the traumatic experience or the termination you've been through, Mm -hmm. uh, then you can work with a career coach or a mentor to really help you rebuild that confidence and then go back out there. That's great advice. I do think that there's a lot of mindset work that needs to be done before diving into the actionable steps. And I think a lot of people skip over that. So everyone is in this rush to kind of do, 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 and they forget to just be right and just process. So I totally respect that advice around taking care of yourself, talking to who you need to talk to, whether it is a lawyer, energy healer, as you mentioned, or coaches such as ourselves. But um, the cool thing about coaches, I think, is some of us really do help out with the mindset piece as well as the action action piece. Um, And there's different folks that do different things. They've got different niches. So I know, Amanda, you, for example, with Atari Career Coaching, have really narrowed in on careers with social impact. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So my entire career and background impact has always been my top priority Mm. over money, over anything else. And 
Throughout my career, I've worked in a variety of roles. When people think of social impact, they do tend to think of the nonprofit industry and the nonprofit space. Uh, and that's, that's one, one component. There's also social enterprise which are and B corporations, which are for-profit companies dedicated to doing good in the world. There's also CSR, corporate social responsibility, which tends to fall under, you know, big, large companies and and corporations and banks, Uh, you know, environmental sustainability, the whole healthcare and mental health industry, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion. Then, of course, international development and humanitarian work. So social impact careers really is is much more broad and diverse than what we think of and and it's not just nonprofits there's a mm-hmm. massive industry where you're doing good in the world uh but i do work with folks that are serious about using their careers for good and making an impact through the work that they do love that and and definitely there are so many more positions out there than one would think on the surface you would immediately think of nonprofit but there's plenty of for-profit organizations out there that either have a subsector or division or a function. I think we've seen the rise of diversity, equity and inclusion positions so those are definitely part of that. And I wanted to also tap into any resources that you would recommend job seekers who are specifically looking at social impact careers. What can they tap into? Definitely. I'll share a couple of my favorites. So Charity Village is known to be, you know, the go-to job site for nonprofit jobs. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other resources and recommendations that I that I love. One of them is the B Corporation Network. So certified B Corporations, similar to how you would get a fair trade certification, companies can get a, a certification to prove that they are doing good in the world. So for example, Etsy is certified a certified B Corp. Evergreen Brickworks is a certified B Corp. Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream is a certified B Corp. Uh, there's Allbird Shoes. They're a certified B Corp. So if you want to do good in the world, but maybe you don't want to work at a traditional nonprofit, uh, maybe you want to work for a more fast, fast-paced, innovative, results-oriented organization, B Corporations are a great resource. They have a website and they also have a job, uh, job site. Uh, one of my other favorite sites is Be Meaningful. It's the letter B and then meaningful.com or .ca. Be Meaningful is specifically for social impact jobs. And it includes, again, nonprofit, social enterprises, CSR, and other roles as well. And then the final resource that I would recommend is the Center for Social Innovation. So CSI is a community in Toronto and New York. They have a newsletter. They have events. They have thousands of members that are all dedicated to social impact and social mm-hmm. innovation and doing good in the world. And again, it includes nonprofits, for-profits, social enterprises, consultants, coaches, freelancers, anyone and everyone, but they're all dedicated to social impact and social innovation. Got it. You know, that is enlightening for me. I did not know about the B Corporation. And, you know, I'm not surprised to hear some of those names there. But the fact that they are certified B Corporations, that's really cool and be meaningful as well. Thank you so much for those resources. Yeah. So what what is it that keeps you motivated in your job and what you do? 
for me, motivation has always come from positively impacting others. That's one. And number two, doing something that I enjoy, that I'm passionate about, that I like doing, that I love doing. As a career coach, definitely my clients keep me motivated. I love seeing, I'm sure you can relate. I love seeing the results, the progress, the confidence, you know, the first time when you speak to a job seeker and they're typically can be, you know, lower self-esteem, maybe not super motivated, maybe not super positive about the outcome that they're Mm -hmm. going to achieve or about what is possible for them to achieve. And so I think seeing a job seeker going from like the very beginning, low motivation, low self-esteem, potentially dealing with depression or anxiety or a lot of stress, burnout, et cetera, imposter syndrome, and then seeing them on this, usually, usually the job search takes uh, about, you know, two to six months, I would say on average. And then for the folks that are really picky, it can take longer. And Mm -hmm. so I think seeing them transform over, over that journey of two to six months and, and then the outcome of this really confident, empowered, you know, badass individual that has accomplished (laughs) this thing that they never thought was possible or achieved a salary increase they had would never have gone for Mm -hmm. before. So I mean, hands down, my clients keep me motivated. That's it. I love that. And I definitely can resonate with that. I think watching someone grow and evolve over the course of that career coaching journey. And for sure, I think for a lot of people that are listening who might not be certain about what that time frame looks like, six months is really where we start to see the offers come in. Some people might get a little bit lucky, of course, putting in some effort also, you know, that that's a piece of it. Um, but really throughout that time, we're watching someone's confidence build and they really are changing as a person, which is so rewarding. And I don't think it ever gets old when somebody tells me that they increased their salary by $25,000 or, you know, they, they got their dream job or that they're now going after a leadership opportunity that they might have been a bit too hesitant to go after. So these are all things that I I definitely resonate with as a career coach. And um, I think that's a unique part of what we do. Um, I want to know, thinking about your career journey, if there's a highlight or a story that you want to share. You know, as career coaches, I think both you and I, we, you know, Mm -hmm. we both really teach confidence. And so I'm, I'm proud to say that there's a lot of highlights I'm really, I'm really proud of because I've learned how to be proud of my accomplishments. And this Mm -hmm. is something I know you and I both teach is teaching other folks and other women, especially how to be proud of their accomplishments. So I I would say I have quite a few highlights, but I think one of the highlights for me that is really inspiring, I think, to other folks is that I was in my dream job as the top sales rep at the startup in early childhood education. I was making well over six figures. I was making $140,000 for the first time in my life, which was Mm -hmm. triple what I was making in nonprofit. (laughs) Right. So that was tripling my salary was a massive accomplishment. Becoming the top sales rep was a massive accomplishment because that was not an easy journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But probably the highlight of all is, you know, fired for my job, 
I'm at the lowest, second lowest moment of my mm-hmm. life. I'm crying for weeks. I lose my appetite. I lost a lot of people I considered friends. Mm-hmm. I finally went to therapy to address my battle with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the highlight is the career comeback. Like the highlight is going from, I was just fired from a company company that really badly mistreated me and disrespected me as a professional and as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I was at a really low moment in my life and very sad and very, you know, traumatized and, and just hurt and being able to, you know, slowly rebuild my life, my happiness, my career, my confidence and go to therapy, get sober. I've been sober for 21 months now. Congrats. Thank you. And that like, that's my highlight is becoming Mm -hmm. being fired and then choosing to run my career coaching business full time, going to therapy, getting sober and uh, having this big, amazing comeback after a terrible moment, you know? Yeah, I think everybody loves a career comeback. So a good comeback story is always appreciated and truly inspiring. So I know that you took your coaching business global. So you also have, would you call it a satellite office in Kenya? Yeah, I I like that. I like satellite office. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So actually I, I mean, I'm back and forth from Canada and Kenya Uh, Mm -hmm. as a social entrepreneur and a social enterprise. Not only do I run a career coaching business, but we then use the funds to provide scholarships for youth in Kenya to go to school. So Mm -hmm. we currently have four scholarship students that are under full financial scholarships. Wow. All funded by Athari. And uh, yeah, and so I'm actually moving to Nairobi, Kenya this January in a couple months. And I I mean, I can work with folks anywhere in the world. That's the beauty of being a career coach Mm -hmm. and working online. Uh, But I also, you know, Kenya's got a special place in my heart. We have a student scholarship program over there, and I'll be doing a lot of career coaching and small business coaching with women there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, office, Toronto, Nairobi, a little bit of everywhere. Super exciting. You know, so I know that we have a lot in common. Another thing we do have in common is I actually lived in Kenya, in Nairobi, but when I was much younger, so I think we're kind of trading places here, um, but that is so exciting. Um, I can't even imagine how exciting, you know, that will be for you, uh, but how and why Kenya? So what gravitated yeah. you towards that spot? So I was 19... 19 years old, 19 or 20. When I first went to Kenya, I was in third, it was right after third year university. And I received an email from a nonprofit organization on campus with an opportunity funded by the Canadian government to go to Kenya for three months and launch this women's entrepreneurship project. And so I went to Kenya for three months. It was a dream come true. It, I actually, there's a whole other story here. I missed the original mm-hmm. interview, to be honest. I was, <laughs> I was in, I was in an interview and there were two like back to back on the same day. And I was too awkward and uncomfortable to leave this like in-person group interview. So I mm-hmm. like tried to stick it out, even though I was so uncomfortable and wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up missing the phone interview for this opportunity to go to Kenya. And, and how I ended up turning things around was I sent them an email and I said, this is my dream job. 
This is what mm-hmm. I want to do. I'm super passionate about this opportunity. Please let me know if anything happens because they had mm-hmm. to move forward with two other candidates. And a couple days later, I received a phone call saying, Amanda, one of the participants is unable to get a visa to go. Are you still available? Mm. And they never interviewed me. Three weeks later, I was on a plane to Kenya. Oh, wow. Yeah. And just because I sent that email, of yeah. like, I want this job. You know? Must have been a great email. <laughs> I, I, I'm ch- I got to try and find it and dig it up one day. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but so that was that was my very first time. I went to Kenya for three months. I worked in a small town called Oyugas, and the, mm. the loyal Leo that I am, I just kept going back over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And I became very loyal to the community and the women's group that I worked mm. with. I coincidentally met these young people that weren't in school, and that's how we started the scholarship program. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a ton of wonderful friends and uh, so many amazing things to say about Kenya and the talented, mm. the talented, ambitious youth that are there. And that's really how it all began. That is so exciting. And I love that you took, you know, took the worst and just kind of created this opportunity for yourself and wrote that email to persuade them that I am the one you need. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's alignment and sometimes it's luck, but this is just a story of both, right? Like you took it upon yourself um, to really take control of the situation. And then um, you also got lucky with that one person not being able to get their visa and things just kind of worked out there. Um, So I think the advice there really is for any job seekers who feel like they may have missed the boat if they missed an interview, you know, it's not too late to write a follow-up email and make a convincing argument. It can really turn things around. And if anything, I think employers really appreciate persistence, right? I think that's one of the things that probably from your sales career, I would imagine you are probably always trying to teach and coach your um, job seeker clients to really learn how to sell themselves and adopt those sales strategies in their search, right? 100%. And I think it's about like, number one, going the extra mile. Mm -hmm. Number two, making it super crystal clear how badly you want the job. Because I know most folks I know that I've interviewed in the past, or even my clients, I'm like, okay, but how badly do you want this? Because you're not selling me. Mm. I'm I'm not sold. I'm not convinced. I can't tell that you're passionate about this opportunity. Like you haven't sold me yet. And, and so I always tell my clients, by the time you leave an interview, there's two things the employer and the interviewer should know. Number one is the unique value that you have to offer your Mm -hmm. skills, your strengths, your experience, your education, why you should get the job, what makes you the best candidate. And number two is how badly do you want the job? Mm -hmm. Why do you want the job? How passionate you are about the job? How long have you admired that organization? How like, you know, like you've got to, you've got to sell us. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and don't like, don't be shy about how badly you want the job and don't be shy about how passionate you are about that opportunity. Yeah. I don't think an interview is ever a time to be shy. I know a lot of folks struggle with this. They think that being too salesy or too excited might be a bad thing, but 
you know, enthusiasm and excitement goes a long way. So for anyone who might even struggle with nerves, I like to always talk about how you can use your nerves and kind of translate that into excitement. If anything, just use that energy to get pumped up and excited. I think interviewers always appreciate that. So love that tip. Um, curious about if someone is wanting to pivot into a social impact role, since I know you have a ton of insight around that, how does one go about making that pivot if they haven't traditionally been in the social um, impact space or nonprofit space? Great question. The first thing is that you have to know that everything is transferable and you can learn anything that you want to learn, right? That growth, that growth mindset of you can become good at anything. You can learn anything you need to that you dedicate yourself to and everything is transferable. Mm -hmm. So so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is network, network, network. (laughs) Every career coach is going to tell you this, but it's true. Network, 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 like crazy. If you want to get into a social impact role, you've got to start surrounding yourself with people in the Mm -hmm. social impact space. So you can attend events. You can start following social impact organizations on social media and LinkedIn, You can start setting up coffee chats with folks in the space. Mm -hmm. You can work with a career coach that has connections in the space. You can show up to all of the events in the social impact space, sign up to those newsletters I mentioned, like Be Meaningful, Be Corporation, Center for Social Innovation. Mm -hmm. So you really just want to surround yourself with that that industry and with professionals and other uh, folks in that space. Mm -hmm. Once you've started researching and exploring and networking, the, the final step I would say is to start preparing your resume and your cover letters and your LinkedIn to mm-hmm. be aligned and tailored and customized to the social impact space. So for example, if you're moving from for-profit, let's say you worked in sales and you want to move into the nonprofit space, you would, you would really want to talk more about like fundraising and donor engagement and, and start using the language and the terminology of the sector that you want to go into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so instead of using like a lot of corporate language, you would want to just adapt and tweak your language slightly to be attractive to nonprofit mm-hmm. hiring managers. Definitely. I think employers want to know that you're speaking the same language, that you're familiar with the space, and there's no better way to do that than to start reframing. I think you're absolutely right that a lot of experience is transferable, but a lot of people lack the language to do that reframing and to speak confidently and sound sound like the person that is needed, right? Because behind that language, it might be the exact same skill, right? Um, But that is a bias, you know, an industry bias where sometimes employers might not see you as the right person because you're speaking a different language. They're thrown off, right? And there's there's a line that um, I like to kind of share with job seekers or anyone who's trying to rebrand themselves is when you confuse, you lose, right? So if you're if you're kind of all over the place with your language and and they're not really understanding you, then sorry, they're going to move on to someone else who is got the language piece there. So I think that branding is so important. Um, And thinking about the recruiter side or the employer side, what would your advice be to them if they are looking to improve their 
you know, workplace culture, or if they're trying to create some opportunities for good. I know that something that you had mentioned earlier on in our conversation is that it's not just the nonprofits doing good, right? There's roles outside of that in the for-profit space, but let's say a company's trying to create, you know, some opportunity around that. What advice would you give them? I think one of the biggest things I've learned over the past two years and and from my termination was that most companies do not value HR professionals uh, or undervalue HR professionals. Mm. And so Mm. they pay, they underpay HR professionals or they hire super junior HR professionals or they have no HR professionals. So my company, my previous employer, we had over a hundred employees and we had not one. HR professional. Wow. And eventually when they hired someone, they ended up hiring someone quite junior. I think it was somewhere around a 60,000 salary versus mm-hmm. hiring a, a senior HR professional, which usually is about a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And so when a company, and this is very common in tech, when a company puts all of their money into software engineers and then pays an HR professional $60,000, it's a little bit of a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of shows you that they really don't value their people as much as they say they do. Mm-hmm. So my advice for every company out there is start valuing your HR professional, mm-hmm. start prioritizing HR, start paying HR well, mm-hmm. and ensure that you have like proper like processes and an employee handbook and employee policies And, you know, I think there's just so much, there's such a massive area of improvement Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, we need job seekers to feel respected. We need job seekers to feel like they're being treated in a professional manner. You know, Mm -hmm. asking someone to have a drink with you after an interview is not appropriate. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Or asking if you have any children in an interview is also not appropriate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, or if you're married, like, so I think that we need companies to really like step their game up and mm-hmm. start investing in their people and HR professionals so mm-hmm. that we can have processes for job seekers that are, uh, you know, professional and empathy is involved and respect is involved and really to avoid any type of mistreatment, discrimination Mm -hmm. or racism. Absolutely. I think that is such a key piece, particularly in the tech space. Oftentimes your people operations and your people processes are the last to to evolve. And it's alarming because it, it all starts from day one, right? A lot of people are very focused on their, their product brand, right? Or the service brand, but they totally forget and slip when it comes to the talent brand, right? And as we're going through this massive shortage, you know, in terms of labor and um, having a really hard time hiring, right? There's companies left, right, and center, particularly in tech, struggling to hire. And a lot of them think it all just boils down to compensation, but that honestly is just one lever. Um, so I remember I, I worked at hire.com and we actually surveyed software engineers and asked them, what is the number one thing that you care about? And they said, impact. 
if I can work for an organization where I know that I'm making an impact, if there's social impact, um, I'm, I'm more sold on it. And, and that's really what is driving a lot of people in what we're hearing as the great resignation, um, right? So a lot of folks are thinking that it's all about the money, but that really is just one driver. Um, and you do need HR folks to be able to invest in, you know, the talent brand, the people processes, the candidate experience, retention, inclusion, all of these topics are so important. And you're right, Amanda, absolutely. You cannot have a junior HR professional come in and, and do all of this, right? I mean, of course, we want to be giving them opportunity, but we don't want to be shortchanging HR professionals. I was just having this conversation with um, a senior HR um, peer of mine who's starting a new job. And, you know, I kind of just said, oh, you know, well, you'll really enjoy your honeymoon period. And I'm sure you'll see the the challenges. And then we kind of stopped and said, wait, HR people do not get a honeymoon period when they join a company, right? Um, They're often the ones that are first slammed with um, whatever issues there are. Um, And I want to close, close off with going back to your story, you know, how you exited, um, you had that brutal exit, you had, you know, uh, this amazing comeback, and you have this global coaching business, you're offering scholarships to people. Um, but what would you say was maybe that learning opportunity um, for you as, as a professional that kind of helped you get back on your feet? Like, what was it that, you know, um, that you want to share with anyone who might be facing that? Yeah, great question. And this is a perfect way to end. Uh, everyone should write this down, what I'm about to say. It's probably one of the best lessons you'll ever <laughs> learn in your life. And it's rejection equals redirection. So mm-hmm. when you're rejected, whether it's by, you know, your boyfriend dumps you or <laughs> uh, you don't get that job that you really wanted, that you made it to the final round interviews of, or you applied for a job and never heard back, or you were fired or laid off from a job, you've always got to take that as a sign from the universe that it is just redirecting you to something Mm -hmm. better. So, So not only rejection equals redirection, but now you've got to believe and you've got to focus on something better is out there for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was meant to be, I'm being redirected down a new path into a new chapter of my life. Love that. Love that. It's great advice. And I know that we hear about it, but to really believe it, right? Um, To sit with that, believe it. And I think, you know, spending some time to process it, leaning into your support network, as you mentioned early on, can really help with that redirection and figuring out those next steps. Yeah. Awesome. And I think, sorry, just add one thing. I think you've also got to accept that it is going to be painful. It's not, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. It's not going to be roses and butterflies. Like I was Mm -hmm. crying for weeks and I had trauma for months and Mm -hmm. I still have some trauma that comes up and things that are triggering, but you know, Mm -hmm. I, I work with a lot of coaches, therapists, energy healers, professionals. So also like ask for help, hire, hire professionals, allow yourself to be sad, allow yourself to feel the emotions, because mm-hmm. that's also, that's also normal and important to uh, feel sad when you, when you experience some type of rejection, that's normal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is so key. I think a lot of people want to jump, right? So when we think about rejection is redirection, people might be thinking about that line, but they feel so sad. And, and they're like, well, wait a minute, I know that something better is there. 
I know that I have to find it, but why do I feel so sad? You know, that, um, that mismatch can really, you know, um, get people stuck. So I think just accepting that, okay, I'm going to give myself a week to be sad about this, even if it takes longer, but, you know, kind of just scheduling your time to be sad and scheduling your time to get over yourself. I think kind of just separating that to build some momentum is important. Um, one thing I will ask you, I think, you know, since you've had this experience and, and we're kind of sharing what to do if you are a job seeker, but what would your advice be to, you know, employers in the tech space that are having these parties and, you know, they're, there might not be as many, right, with the pandemic, but now that we're going back into an in-office culture, what do you have to say about that, right? We have the office party with the open bar and all of that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I've learned throughout this whole, you know, alcohol-free sobriety journey Mm -hmm. that our entire culture and society globally has really been brainwashed in a sense or or just heavily marketed that alcohol is a good thing and alcohol Mm -hmm. and we should all drink alcohol. And, you know, we've we've basically been bombarded by marketing and advertisements for decades and centuries that alcohol is you know, something we should all be doing. And so it's, it's hard. It's hard because Mm -hmm. a lot of folks, when you talk about cutting back on alcohol or being alcohol free or getting sober, a lot of folks uh, tend to be in denial or like quite defensive about it. So I think the best thing is like, you know, practice empathy, like Mm -hmm. not, not everyone, you don't know addiction or a problem Hmm. someone might just have like a traumatic past with alcohol like I have Uh, I think the problem is alcohol does not add value or create a healthier or safer space Mm -hmm. and when we introduce alcohol we're actually making that environment less safe and particularly less safe for women even more so than Mm -hmm. men so I've heard a lot of stories of you know, companies party, lots of alcohol, other drugs, and, you know, things like sexual harassment and other things like that happening. Mm -hmm. I think that I I just think that alcohol does not make an environment better or healthier or safer or more Mm -hmm. professional. I think it makes it less professional, less healthy, less safe, and Mm -hmm. uh, can lead to some serious consequences. So I think we need to be more mindful of, you know, the health and wellness of our employees. And let's start investing in yoga classes. Let's start offering, you know, non-alcoholic beverages. Let's stop like, like having alcohol at every single every event. Oh, yeah. Event. Mm-hmm. Because also like, you know, there's, there's women that, women that might be pregnant that aren't drinking oh, alcohol. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. folks that for religious reasons don't drink Mm -hmm. alcohol. There's folks that just don't want to drink alcohol for health reasons or financial Mm -hmm. reasons, or Mm -hmm. maybe they've had an abusive relationship in the past related to Mm -hmm. alcohol. I just think we have to be more empathetic and we have to start making better choices for the well-being and the health of our employees. Definitely. I would say that there is this assumption that everybody loves a drink, right? And I think it's important to challenge that assumption and, 
you know, there's been many times I've worked in offices where there's a free beer policy, uh, but what if, what if I don't like beer? <laughs> so, you know, there has to be some other options. And when we talk about inclusion, just really thinking about the different people in your environment. And to your point, you know, um, it's not necessarily something that makes the culture any safer. Um, and, you know, this is not to say that, you know, companies should completely, you know, scrap it. I, I guess, you know, it's, it's something that maybe you can offer, but it shouldn't be sort of like the main perk. Um, and particularly at these events, when we talk about sales events and when we talk about, you know, holiday parties, I think just having an environment where there's different activities potentially, right? And offering people opportunities to engage in more meaningful ways um, can really offset some of the issues that we then hear in terms of the aftermath. And as we talk about reputation, not just for your individual employees, but as a company, right? And I think like as someone, someone like myself and to mm-hmm. all of the other folks that don't drink alcohol. So if, if, if you're pregnant mm-hmm. for religious reasons, for financial reasons, for health reasons, for all of the folks that don't drink alcohol, mm-hmm. it's really disappointing for us to see the thousands of dollars that companies or big companies, hundreds and thousands of dollars that companies spend on alcohol when mm. I, I want a gym membership, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I would like to eat something besides pizza every day for mm-hmm. lunch. I would like a increase in my base salary. Like there are things that are more important than alcohol. And I am really disappointed knowing that companies I've worked with are mm-hmm. spending all of their money on alcohol instead of giving me the raise that I deserve or give a <laughs> right. membership that actually benefits my health and wellness and my productivity mm-hmm. or giving me more than pizza for lunch when we've eaten <laughs> pizza five days in a row. Right. Like, Niha, I was told that we didn't have anything but like we didn't have any extra money in the budget for mm-hmm. anything but pizza five days in a row. Wow. But right, right around the corner, there's a fridge stocked with alcohol. Yeah, I was also told that we no longer had a budget for our book club anymore, Mm -hmm. but there was a fridge stocked with hard alcohol. So I'm like, you're telling me we don't have money for books. We don't have money for a gym membership. We don't have money to buy me a new, uh, to buy me a laptop. I've been Mm -hmm. using my personal device and you don't have money for anything besides pizza, but you always have money for alcohol. Right, right. No, I think it's interesting. I don't think enough people challenge the idea, right? It's, it's an assumption that everybody wants this. But it's true that in in the tech space, in particularly, I think a lot of founders may be operating their company as a fraternity, right? And, And we're not all, we're not all in it for that. And, and it's important to kind of think, with a more global lens um, and just being a bit more cautious and mindful, as you mentioned. So I really appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Career Catharsis podcast. It would mean the world to me if you shared this episode with somebody that you know to inspire someone to take the next step in their career. Send me your feedback at coach.neha.coram at gmail.com. Connect with me on Instagram at coach.neha or find me on LinkedIn. Simply type my name, Neha Coram, and you'll find me. Looking forward to connecting and see you next time.